Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. It's no surprise that hardman Irvin Welsh likes Omar Moose's debut novel, Here Come the Dogs. Finding it a work of such swaggering exuberance that it will make most other fiction you read this year seem criminally dull, to quote him. Malaysian-Australian Musa has published two poetry collections and two solo hip-hop albums and describes his writing as poetry of unease. He applies a provocative voice to issues of migration, racism, violence, masculinity and loneliness and speaks in conversation with Selena Tusitala Marsh in this festival session. We hope you enjoy it. Here is an intro of Omar. So your, your mother is Irish? Irish Australian, kind Irish. of third, third generation, yes. like so many, yep. so many Aussies. Yep. Yeah, and your dad is from Borneo. Yeah, he's from Borneo, East Malaysia. He was born in a, a town called Sandakan, uh, which is the second biggest town in, in Sabah, right. uh, that state of Malaysia. Yes, has a lot of kind of historical resonances with Australia as well because of the, the death marches uh, that the Japanese made the Australian soldiers do um, from Sandakan or to Sandakan. Right. Does anyone know? I always forget. Right, yeah. And then you, so where were you born? What country were you born in? I was born in Australia, um, halfway between Canberra and Sydney, Mm -hmm. in quite a middle-class town, conservative town called Bowral, Bowral Hospital, where Don Bradman was from. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and then we moved to Queanbeyan when I was about three. So Queanbeyan's a small town in New South Wales outside of Canberra. Wonderful. Known as Struggle Town. Yes, yes. And a lot of your, st- well, no, we were, I'll, I'll finish the intro. Um, so you're former winner of the Australian Poetry Slam and the Indian Ocean Poetry Slam. You slammed it, well, you performed your heart out with King Caps last night. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Was anyone there at the King Capisi event? Yeah, Excellent. it was really fun. Wonderful. And you've released three hip-hop albums, two poetry books, one called Parang, which yep. is, um, you use a, a Samoan word, well, it means machete. I, I consider yeah. machete a Samoan word. Right. <laughs> so, um, and you received a standing ovation at TEDx Sydney at the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. That was wonderful. So that that's great. available online as well. And you've just completed, was it five months? I've just been travelling for five months. I was in India and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh uh, for two months, uh, talking about the book and doing performances. And then I was in the States on book tour for two months, which is really fun, but mm. tiring. But it's nice to end it off here in this part of the world and right. then go back home and just lock myself in a cave for a while. Well, that's, that's part of the pressure of being so successful. You oh, just yeah, have to well, travel yeah. everywhere and do everything. <laughs> it's, it's getting hard out here. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, Here Come the Dogs. Do you want to give a, just a very brief kind of plot summary without giving away the ending? <laughs> it's about... Um, <laughs> Three young men growing up in a nameless Australian town that's very much like my hometown, uh, Queanbeyan. And uh, one guy, Solomon, is a failed basketball player who's Samoan Australian. His best friend is a guy called Alex, spelt with a K, who's a Macedonian Australian guy who moved after the breakup of the uh, Yugoslavian Federation and kind of drifts in and out of the criminal world. And, uh, and then the third main character is Jimmy, who's Solomon's half-brother, who kind of doesn't know his ethnic origins. And uh, it was my attempt to write about the Australia that I see, about uh, an Australia that's not really represented in tourist ads or postcards, Mm. a combustible society, 
where um, race and class and gender are all rubbing up against one another, creating friction. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, there are, the, the exciting thing about Australian literature at the moment, I feel, is that so many of the good stories are not yet written. There are so many stories yet to be written, basically, uh, because so many people in Australia have been kept voiceless for a long time mm. or have had stories written about them or for them. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of a watershed moment at the, at the yeah, watershed time at the moment. So what are some of the challenges involved in telling other people's stories, other pe from marginalised communities, especially if you're not from that community? I mean, of course, cultural appropriation would have right. come up in a number of your dealings with interviewers and oh, definitely. readers. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, this is not autobiography, but it's influenced by the place that I grew up. So, you know, Queen Bien has got quite... Um, a particular demographic. I grew up around a lot of people from the Balkans, a lot of people from Samoa and Tonga, a lot of Aboriginal kids. And, uh, and so there's not many places in the world, I think, that have that particular mm. mix. Uh, so that influenced the book um, because I, I felt ashamed that I had grown up around all these people um, and I consider myself to be quite a progressive thinker, but I'd never actually extended uh, my my mind or my hand to these neighbours of mine and tried to find out about their cultures. Uh, and so I kind of got to the age of 30 and realised I actually didn't know that much about Samoan culture or Macedonian culture. Um, and part of the problem with Australia is that lack of empathy and compassion and willingness to understand the stories of our neighbours. So in part, the process of writing the book was trying to understand some of the people that I grew up with. And I mean, that's not to say that I'm suddenly some expert on the history of the South Pacific or mm. the Balkans or something like that. But then, yeah, I mean, it is difficult, you know. This term cultural appropriation is something, it's, it's, it's a hot topic, you know, it's a buzzword, it's something people talk about a lot. Um, and, it's, and it is difficult. Uh, I think I'm probably given a little bit more leeway to write about some of these people of colour who have different origins to myself because mm -hmm. I am a person of colour. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of pitfalls. And um, I think uh, when trying to write a character who is of a culture that's not your own, firstly, it's empathy. You, you must deal with that character with empathy. You know, that, that's what fiction's all about, is empathising with someone who... Uh, you know, other than, other than yourself, someone who's not youth. <laughs> and, um, and secondly, there's a whole lot of research involved. Uh, and then thirdly, I think it's that willingness to cop the inevitable criticism that will come your way. You know, oftentimes people don't like to be criticised. You know, they, they think that they're just going to put this work of genius out into the cultural arena and it's going to be dealt with as this beautiful kind of artefact and no one's going to criticise them. And I think uh, you've got to be willing... To, um, own up to the mistakes. Own up to the mistakes. Palusami. I spelled Palusami wrong. I apologise to any Samoans <laughs> out there. That is a Samoan uh, delicacy. <laughs> yeah, I was really embarrassed about that actually. Uh, and I spelled a couple of Macedonian words wrong too. That was pointed out to me with great vigour by <laughs> my Macedonian friends. Uh, no, and that, and that was horrible. But, you know, it's kind of one of those things you, you're going to make mistakes and... And I think you have to take risks and be willing to make these mistakes if you're going to uh, forge a new type of literature. That's right. Because I've never seen the, this combination of characters together. There's a Macedo it sounds like a bad joke. Macedonian, a Samoan, and an Afakasi Samoan walk into a bar. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you render these characters so fully and so very masculine. Right. I mean, the opening line of your book, well, I might get you to read the first um, 
couple of pages because the book is very poetic. It's poetic prose. There are dream sequences. There's poetry with a spoken word aesthetic, and then there's this gorgeous prose that also reads like poetry. And on the page, it, it dances, and there are sections that are italicized. And um, one thing that Omar and I had talked about when we initially um, found out that we would be speaking with each other is I said, what, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this book. What do you want to talk about? And he said, well, I don't get to talk about the literary influences or the style of the book very much because the politics can be, you know, quite um, dominant and the politics is important. Um, but also a kind of gender politics operating there. That, right. that very first line, he drops the C word, and I, I don't mean coconut, <laughs> as we, we might understand here in Auckland, New Zealand. Right. Right? So I'll let you read the, sure. um, the opening sequence. Okay, yeah, and if I'm talking about influences, I was very much influenced by a lady called Dorothy Porter that some of you might have heard of, a great Australian verse novelist who wrote this kind of, um, these lesbian thrillers in verse form. And uh, there was a, a particular one I read called The Monkey's Mask, which was brilliant. It was made into a, a great movie. And uh, I was having a lot of trouble writing the prose because I'd, I'd made hip-hop albums, I'd written a lot of poetry, but I'd never written prose, and I didn't realise how difficult it was going to be for me. But when I read The Monkey's Mask, I realised that you could have uh, each scene be a little different poem or vignette, and it would keep the pace cracking, and it was very, very vivid. Mm. And, uh, and so I, that was my access to fiction, was through poetry. And then after a while, writing it, I thought, well, why not just break down the barriers and, and sort of... Uh, drop in and out of poetry and prose and even script um, without any apology or explanation. Yes. Um, but this is from the, I'll read the prologue as well. This has always been a land of fire. Once a year, the ancients would go into the mountains in search of bogong moths. They carried burning branches and thrust them into rents in the rock, stunning the congregated moths then catching them in fibrous nets or kangaroo skin. The moths were roasted on fine embers and the ancients feasted, vomiting for the first few days, but then growing accustomed to the rich, fatty food. The ancients would return from the mountains with glossy skin, glistening like shadow. Afterwards, fires would burn on the mountains for days. Chapter 1. <clears throat> Where are these cunts? There it, is. there it is. There it is. I kind of, <laughs> I like the idea. It was like, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, they call me Ishmael. Where are these cunts? Uh, <laughs> it's too hot, bro. Too fucking long without rain. Two by two, they troop in. The madness of summer in the brain. In the dying light, the crowd looks like hundreds of bobbling balloons waiting to be unfastened. Sweating tinnies and foreheads. Sad cunts and sorrow drowners, the lot of them. I stand up, six foot two and shining, yawn, twist side to side on my hinges and survey the crowd. Shit, it's not like the boys to be late, especially on a day like today, because it's summer, the deepest season, throbbing with danger and promise, every scallywag, seed thief and skate park wrapped up in a white hot skin. And here come the dogs, strange, smiling creatures, lean flanked and ready to race. An old bloke turns around and grins with opalized eyes. Nothing like the old dish lickers, eh? <laughs> I smile and flick a fly from my knuckle. Yeah, fuck no, brother. The dog's barks detonate across the track. 
The trainers are gruff people, but now they coo to the hounds, straightening their racing silks, crouching to check and bend their ankles. One says a prayer and kisses his dog on its narrow head. A dry wind scythes across the stands and I reach up to keep my hat on. Bushfire weather, eh? The old timer is right. This town is a powder keg, a perfect altar for a bushfire, the sole god of a combustible summer. So visceral and so vivid and so detail-driven, and we really get, I, I got a sense of the greyhound racing kind of context, and through it you create this really strange, deeply empathetic relationship with the most alienated character in the book, with Jimmy, right, right. and this relationship he has with um, a retired greyhound called Mercury Fire, who is just a gorgeous animal, right? right. Um, see, I didn't start off with what, when, or how, who, so that was just a statement. <laughs> what are the consequences of that first line for you as a writer? We were talking um, about the schools. Well, when I talk about um, and was it worth being it? willing was to face the it? criticism that will come at you, I mean, firstly, it means it can't get taught in schools which means I'm going to make less money out of the book than I would like. Um, but <laughs> actually, but that's a really important point because which I think is my bullshit. sons need to read this. Yeah, I mean, right? I think it's bullshit. People kind of um, coddle teenagers far too much. I mean, I was just working with a bunch of the kids in South Oaks yesterday. I heard one of them say the word, you know. And it's just like people, they use these words. Why can't it be a part of literature, you know? And as long as you talk about it. And I mean, I hate this idea of, what is offensive and what's not, and where you draw the line. You know, I always have these kind of skirmishes with English teachers because they'll say, "Oh, well, that's a bit, you know, that, that that's a bit too profane to teach the kids, or it's, it, that could be considered offensive." And I sort of ask them, "What are you teaching the kids right now?" And they'll usually say something like, "Oh, 1984." You know, all oh, right. So a torture scene with a rat eating someone's face off <laughs> is kind of more appropriate <laughs> than the sea bomb. You know, um, but at the same time, I kind of. Um, I knew I would face up to criticism uh, for using this type of, of language and for, making, for writing a very masculine book. Originally, this book was written from the point of view of about 15 different characters. I wanted it to be a kind of polyglot representation of all these different uh, people living in a small town. Firstly, I, didn't, I wasn't sure I had the poetic chops to pull that off and to differentiate between those voices enough. But I realized as I was writing this book that this was really about these three young men and about this toxic kind of masculinity we have in Australia, to use that kind of uh, that, that hot term as well, um, and, and that I wanted to really push it there and really focus on these young men and what they go through, how they treat women, how they talk to women, and actually also the absence of women in their lives and their unease and their fear about women. But doing that, you know, I mean, we all talk about the, the, uh, the Bechdel test nowadays, uh, you know, to people who are not in the know. What is it? It's, uh, you know, analysing a book or a movie and seeing, if, does it have three female characters? Two. Two, Two yes. Do they have names? <laughs> and do they talk about something other than the are male there, characters? Are there two female characters? Do they have a conversation about something other than a man? Yep. And do they have names as well? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
I would like to think that I, I had more than, <laughs> more than two female characters who had names who were talking about stuff other than the men. Um, but, you know, people, that's been the main criticism of my book. People have said it's, it fails the Bechdel test, and, 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 really? it, and it does. Really? Because Sol- Solomon, is, Solomon is girlfriend's pretty... A pretty powerful well, that was the other thing. I, I wanted the, the, the women to be. I thought she was be, like um, the redeeming character there, in, in terms of the. the well, that's what I that's what I thought as well. And at, actually, structurally, I tried to build it so that the last word almost is with the woman, Solomon's girlfriend, who who looks at these men and says, "I'm going to leave these boys, mm. not men. I'm going to mm. leave these boys to their world of fire and violence and slang." You know. So actually, the woman makes the final move in the book, and, and I mean no. Uh, yeah, no one kind of picked up on that, but... Um, I did. Uh, oh, well, thank you. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the, the Bechdel test is a really important thing to have, but I think it's probably more important when applied to literature or cinema as a whole, because sometimes when dealing with individual works themselves, I mean, you can't apply these rigid kind of ideas, because then I could point to Alison Bechdel's work and say, well, it fails the Omar Musa test, and there weren't... <laughs> Two characters of colour in there, or whatever. You know what I mean? And, and no sea bomb. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Re- reflecting the language um, of the time and that that particular subculture, because you've got several subcultures going on there. Yeah, but at the same time, so so there are there are male stories and there are male stories. I mean, these are young men. Well, a lot of them are young men of colour uh, who haven't been written about. So it's not as if I'm just kind of rehashing kind of white male middle class writing in some way. These are men who haven't been talked about. Yes. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a pretty complicated yes, yes. kind of issue. Yeah. Well, and Solomon's girlfriend intrigued me because she was very much part of the graffiti crew as well. And, you, you know, in, in the book, graffiti becomes a vehicle for voice for these disenfranchised people. Yeah. And visibility. It's a yeah, exactly. And sort of fame and infamy um, amongst people who feel like they, they can't... Uh, you know, claim a place for themselves publicly or in, in Australia. Mm. Um, but I had to do a lot of research, actually. A lot of people assume that I was a graffiti writer, but I was never. I was only into hip-hop because of the music and the words, you know, the poetry of hip-hop. And so I had to do so much research, and it's kind of hard because, you know, graffiti writers are notoriously kind of secretive, because you have to be, because if you get nailed, it could be like $80,000 worth of, you know, charges or whatever, Damage. damages. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, once I got talking to these guys and they knew I wasn't going to snitch or anything, um, they love talking about their war stories and <laughs> I got some good stuff out of it. And, and it brought up all these interesting things. Like there was, there was a, a scene where uh, one of the characters is in jail and the other two want to do a piece that incorporates the, the red and yellow Macedonian flag and the red, black and yellow Aboriginal flag, and I thought, oh, no problem, this is going to be a really cool scene, and I wrote it, and I sent it to a graffiti, uh, a graffiti writer, a friend, and he said, oh, you would never put those colours together, you know, because yellow is too dribbly if you put it next to black, and, and you know, it sort of brought up all these other things, yes. um, and it was, yeah, it was really fascinating, so I kind of eventually built that um, into the scene, and I thought that hip-hop really lent itself to drama in a novel, and I'd never really read hip-hop written about in a cool way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the great hip-hop books seem to be quite sociological or kind of these photographic accounts of graffiti in New York in the 80s, um, but not kind of the, the drama of a hip-hop show or a graffiti mission or something like that. And, uh, and I wanted to honour that generation uh, of, of kind of Australian hip-hop fanatics. And definitely no one had ever written about Australian hip-hop uh, in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think because, you know, sometimes it's, seen, it's, it's kind of seen as this novelty sort of thing and, and no one really delves deeply into it and, and why it attracts people to it as well. 
Well, you've certainly got a number of conversations that address the real hip-hoppers and the ones that try to sound American, but they're in Australia, and, right. and all those gradations of the value system that the internal group have about you know, who counts as a true hip-hopper. Yeah, and kind of authenticity and yes. everything. But I mean, I was also, this, in, in a way, it's a bit of a dated book, because that moment of Australian hip-hop has already kind of passed where, you know, the b-boys would turn up at rap shows and, you know, rappers and b-boys would also do graffiti. Can you define b-boys? No, I can't. Can you define what a b-boy oh, is? Oh, sorry, a breakdancer, a breakdancer. So there's okay. the four elements of hip-hop. If hip-hop is a culture, there's um, graffiti, breakdancing, DJing and rapping. And then some people would say beatboxing is the fifth element um, of hip-hop. And, uh, and so, you know, as Australian hip-hop has suddenly become huge in the marketplace and, and popular, uh, now the focus is essentially on, on the musicians. And a lot of the other ones have become a bit more obscure. So th these guys are not teenagers, you know, they're in their early 30s. And so they're kind of nostalgic for this old period of, of hip-hop that's already passed them by. And so the nature of change is something that I was trying to look at in the book and, and gentrification. And that's definitely a, a, a part of the book where it does become quite autobiographical because my town, Queenbian, has changed a lot from a very working class place, as I said, struggle town, now somewhere where a lot of public servants from Canberra live when they realised that it was kind of cheaper to live there and you can get a soy latte in Queenbian, which would not have ever happened uh, in the, under my watch in the, in the 90s. <laughs> Oh, no, I do like a good soy latte myself, actually. <laughs> well, that, that's another running theme through the book, is this kind of clinging to the past and almost a refusal to grow up. And then one of the main characters decides, well, actually, I'm going to have dreams bigger than this, this town. And, you well, know. The, well, well, Scarlett does, the woman, yeah. Uh, she did, not, I mean, the Australia she sees, she, she's Kiwi, and um, she had dreamed of the, this kind of... Uh, mythical Australia of, of white sand beaches and kind of open roads and the, and the majesty of the outback and then she's kind of suddenly trapped in suburbia and um, which is the, the Australia that a lot of us know and mm. flat blocks mm. and things like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I tried to um, kind of make each character represent a different attitude towards Australia. Um, so, you know, one person Oh, I don't want to give too much away, but I'll just, I won't say the names. So one person decides that, okay, this Australia that I know might be ugly, but it's all I know. So I need to plant roots here and, and, and figure out a life for myself. Another person thinks, no, maybe the best idea is to reject Australia outright and move back to the homeland, which doesn't happen that all that much That's with migrant groups. Um, it's the diasporic dream of yeah, returning exactly. to a returning mythical home. home yeah. Yeah. Mm. But it's still a bit shaky at the end. Mm. You don't know quite what happens. I don't believe he does myself. What's that? Okay. You what? I don't believe he does okay, myself. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. comment on no. that. Yep. And, the, the, um, and then the third character um, thinks that we should just burn the whole fucking place down. Um, and actually, that, is, uh, that was the initial image I started off with. Um, with oh, yeah, and you've got the, the mm. flames on the mm. cover. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of um, started writing the book um, with this image of a bushfire, because I'd lived through the Canberra bushfires in 2003, and uh, you know, I just remember the sky being jet black in the middle of the day and this kind of lipstick red sun. And I was with my friends kind of walking around, and I suddenly realised there was this black ash drifting from the sky and it looked like 
black snow, but it was jet black ash. And, and I, it imprinted itself, this image imprinted itself in my brain. And I'd never thought I would write a novel at that time. I was about 19 or something. But I knew that I would use it somewhere, in a poem, in a song. I wasn't sure. That is one of the most poetic sequences in the book. Yeah, and it's because it. people, yeah, and... and um, and because we are always waiting for rain in Australia, you know, it's such a dry continent, and then sometimes when it comes, it's black ash. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but then I wasn't sure where I was going to use it, and then years later, I kind of uh, heard someone talking about how oftentimes the young men who start bushfires on purpose, and it's always young men, it's never women, which is interesting, uh, oftentimes the young men will masturbate over the fire, and I suddenly had this image in my head of this young man with his pants around his ankles, kind of slick with sweat in front of a wall of flame, just vigorously masturbating. And I knew do. that it would be, <laughs> I knew that this would become a seminal moment <laughs> in Australian literature. No, Here come the dogs, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. No, no, but seriously, it did kind of intrigue me that it was always young men. And it said something to me about a very destructive type of Australian masculinity. Yeah. Um, and, and that these young men feel so powerless, uh, because that's what it's all about. Oftentimes the young men uh, are fatherless, or they have very shitty home lives, and they feel as if they can't control anything in their lives. And so the one thing they might be able to control is starting a fire and then putting it out. But of course, the tragedy is oftentimes they can't put it out. Um, and so that's, that was the kernel of wh where, where the book came from. And I started kind of reverse engineering from there. You know, what, what is this guy's name? What's he, what's he like? Uh, who are his friends? Uh, what's his ethnicity? What type of music does he listen to? And, uh, because he's, he's not a character that you would easily feel empathy with, but by the end we do because, you know, he's kind of like a psycho sociopath in the making, you know. Well, right. he... he he betrays all those kind of behaviours. Why, why was it... Well, well, you have to try and empathise with the character, don't you? I mean, you can't just paint with such broad strokes that um, you just see them as a villain or a monster. And I think that that's part of the problem oftentimes when these kind of lefty male feminists kind of say like, oh, yeah, you know, these men, well, they're just monsters and they're kind of irredeemable or unredeemable. And you, So I say, well... No, that's not true. The problem is not that they're monsters, it's that they're human beings and they're brothers and uncles and, and friends sons. and sons, sons and people that we know and yeah. colleagues, mm. you know. And so there must be some sort of value in trying to figure out what the hell is going through their heads. Well, because you know? and then, But that also was kind of almost a, a chess problem in writing it. You know, I was reading recently, oh, I was watching a great lecture about Lolita and how Nabokov kind of often would try and construct these chess problems for himself. And that was the greatest chess pro literary chess problem of all. How to get an audience to really empathise with and even like a, a pedophile, you know. And that was... It, mine wasn't as extreme as that, but it was getting towards that. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you empathise with someone that does such horrible things? And most people tell me that he's their favourite character and the character they kind of like the most. He's the most memorable one for sure. Yeah. But, you but he is deranged too. But you explore that well. with, his, with the relationship with his father. That right. father. Right. I mean, you've got these amazing dream sequences where, you know, he's either hallucinating or he's really there or he's dreaming. Yeah. But the, the absent father plays a major role in 
allowing us to see the layers of that character. Yeah, and I had to access that in a really dreamlike, hallucinatory way, um, I, I felt. Uh, because but your editors didn't like it, right? Oh, my editors hated it. Yeah, I had three different editors. Uh, not because they suddenly got <laughs> sick of me. and the, <laughs> um, One got another job, one had to move to a different department. And then, anyway, but um, they all kind of were like, oh, well, you know, the dream sequences, they're a little bit hard to understand. And what if the average Joe doesn't understand them? And, and I said, well, yeah, I get what you're saying, but... But fuck the average Joe, you know. I, I'm not here to make anodyne fence-sitter art by democratic referendum, you know. I'm, I am the dictator of my art, and I wanted to write about a hallucinatory Australian nightmare, and they had to stay, because it was about the internal lives of these, of these characters. And, um, and weirdly, I kind of wrote them in almost a trance-like state. I can't quite remember writing those those dream sequences. And so you were asking me before what surprises me when I look back, and, and those do, because I go, mm. oh, where was I? Mm. What was I under the influence of when mm. I was mm. writing these? Yeah, well, the question I was asking Omar is, have you ever written anything and then have it speak back to you in a way that surprised you, or you didn't intend for those things to be there, but they are, and that was one of the... Yeah, and that... Um, and the kind of fatherlessness that drives people, that drives people mad. Mm. Um, it, it can just it can drive people to some very destructive things, obviously. But then I would say, um, you know, I've got no stats on this, but so many people that I was in the hip hop scene with were father, did not know their fathers, or um, or had horrible home lives, and so hip hop became this kind of masculine tribe of men, a family structure. I think you do use the word tribe. Yeah, it was kind of provided a structure for people born of fracture and fatherlessness. Um, and a way to, to create a community and to do something kind of positive. Um, you know, that it, it's still problematic, of course, because I, and I bring that up, like how, you know, Scarlett looks around at the hip-hop show and goes, God, where, where are the women? And, and especially on stage, why are there no women on stage? Mm. You know? mm. So it's not without its problems, but mm. um, that was a way that a lot of people I knew dealt with that. Mm. Mm. Well, so to, re to go back to the literary style, I think the, the hybrid nature of your writing evokes in such a vivid way the, the kind of disparate characters, the, the rich layers of complexity. They're all quite um, drawn out individual, like, uh, what am I trying to say? Kind of, you've, you've explored each of those three characters quite differently yeah. and maximised all the literary techniques you could right, to, yeah, to yeah. build their world. Right? Well, because I kind of, I perceive, I, 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 I conceived of the book as being cinematic, you know, I, I thought of it as a movie as well as a book. And, um, and so when I had these kind of 15 different characters and all the points of view, originally it was going to be all first person verse. Uh, and as I said, that became a bit confusing. So I needed to leave it to fallow for a little bit and kind of figure out a, a, a structural, um, strategic approach to how to tell this story by maybe narrowing it down a little bit. And so eventually I decided that if I want to make it cinematic, I should mirror the effect of different camera lenses. And so to me, the, the first person verse is kind of like an up close lens. You can see the hairs on the back of Solomon's hands and the paws and smell the sweat and everything's very up close and you can see the minutiae of his life uh, and, and his inner thoughts as well. But then with Alex, I feel like Alex almost makes some kind of sociological observations about Australia. And I, want, I thought that the third person 
kind of that impersonal third-person prose would be more like a panoramic view of Australia or maybe like a, a hovering eyeball mm. above the city where you can kind of see everything from a, a bit more of a distance and as a whole. And then Jimmy, I wanted, to, we, I wanted to be close to him, but still at arm's length because he is so kind of mad and deranged. And um, I, I thought that by combining the two and dropping in and out of it, it might be a little bit... I don't know if I succeeded in this, but I thought, I hoped that it might be like a tracking camera over someone's shoulder walking down the street. So you're, you're close, but still at a remove. So that was, the, those, that was why I made those kind of structural decisions. He's so articulate. It's so easy to chair a discussion with you. You just... <laughs> um, you know, I've, I thought f until recently that my name Omar meant eloquent. And I always thought that was such a cool thing. Or, apparently it just means tall. <laughs> and you're not even there. Yeah, I know, uh, I know. Uh, uh, Last night, King Kapisi kept talking about like, oh God, who would have thought, you know, a little Samoan boy would go up to win the Silver Scroll. And I'm like, little Samoan, like, what? he's like six foot five. Anyway, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm it's, getting used to being dwarfed, it's, um, it's being all, out in Aotearoa, <laughs> out in South Orks yesterday. It was just so, all these kids are calling me sir, and they're like, you know, year 12s with six foot three with beards, you know, I'm just like, Jesus. Yeah. Um, so the book, is, the book has received quite a bit of critical acclaim. Um, what, what's one of the things that you feel cr critics can't quite get past? Or has there been a major kind of misunderstanding that you felt kind of like, oh, they completely missed the point there? I felt, well, this is interesting. Like, I felt that the American reviewers were a lot more kind of... Uh, mature and nuanced in the way they analysed it from the point of view of race relations. And I think it said a lot because the Australian reviewers seemed a little bit nervous about even touching a book like this. And, um, and they would always keep returning to talking about oh, Omar Musa's voice from the streets. You know, it was just kind of really weird and reductive, especially considering I went to a private school. And um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just and like, it was very strange. And, and that, it, was, it was very surface level, the way yes. they, they would analyse it. Um, I think there was this unease about dealing with race relations. And that said a lot about the two cultures. I mean, as, as screwed up as America is, at least race and race politics is kind of on the agenda. Whereas in Australia, often we just act as if it doesn't exist at all, yes. or that you're stupid for even trying to bring it up, or that you should just get over it. Right. Uh, and I think that even bleeds into the kind of uh, literary classes as well. Well, we, we first met in London at the Australia New Zealand Literary Festival um, in September last year, and um, we were at the opening when the Australian High Commissioner um, opened up with his speech, and he'd said something to the effect of, well, we've had our little hiccups in Australia, but we're over that now. Yeah. And, um, and there were two Aboriginal uncles, like three metres from him, there was no acknowledgement. Oh, it, was it was unbelievable. And it was the weirdest festival, and I said to the New Zealand festival director, I said, this could never happen in New Zealand, you would never have a non-Māori doing something that was Māori to open up a festival. So there was a non-Aboriginal uh, musician playing the didgeridoo. Yeah. And I thought, they couldn't get anybody? Nobody? And anyway, so Alexander... Alexander Downer. Downing. Some of you might remember him. Was, he, was, he, was he led the Conservative Party in Australia for a while. He was speaking, and then Omar goes, what did you yell out? 
Oh, I just kept saying, this is fucking madness. Like, like that. <laughs> like, at that, with that And volume. then Uncle Tony with Birch, <laughs> Uncle Tony Birch, who's a great Aboriginal writer from Melbourne, and he kind of, he's a, he looks like a bit like an alley cat. He used to be a real fighter and stuff, and now he's a professor. And he goes, yeah, yeah, what a cunt. <laughs> and we're just, like, the whole thing just started kind of falling apart. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he just, it was very strange because he just seemed like a dinosaur, you know, and it, the, the way he was, he, yeah, he was saying, oh, the British were so great for Australia's history and history of Australia, and yeah, you know, a few, yeah, yeah a few mistakes were made, and he kind of said like, <laughs> you know, he's kind of laughing, and it was, unbe- I mean, this is a guy, when he was leading the Conservative Party of Australia, he released the domestic violence policy, right, and he joked that it should be called, the things that batter. This is the caliber of man we're talking about. So I did not feel ashamed about heckling this fucking asshole <laughs> on stage at King's College London. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, though, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it is a generational thing, and it might, might be that side of politics too, but John Howard was always carrying on about how, oh, you know, we're over all that culture stuff, he said. We, yes. you know, we know yes. who we are as Australians, yes. which is patently untrue. It just felt very uncomfortable to be at official opening, and there were two Aboriginal uncles there, right there, yeah. and he just saw through them, yeah. saw through them and above them. But then we, we competed, right? I mean, I'm not wearing this oh, medal here for we nothing. Go. I'm All just right. saying. I knew she would bring this up. <clears throat> do, you, do you want to tell them about that? <laughs> I'm not going to say. Well, I've suddenly got a convenient case of amnesia about this. <laughs> no, it was a literary death match. Yes. We had to perform. We had to uh, perform our work. We defeated the... Where were the other guys from? We, oh, um, no, no, it was one Aussie and one Kiwi, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, there were the a couple of other... Anyway, we defeated them. They sort of fell to the wayside immediately. And, and we got to the finals, and I thought, oh, no. You know, because I'm a performance poet, and you're this amazing spoken word hip-hop artist, rapper, and then they changed the rules, and I thought, thank the Lord. So do you want to explain? Well, that? all right, so, yeah, well, they, they had all these people from the audience, and they had to hold up a letter and then you had to arrange the letters into the name of a famous author, and whoever did it the, the, fastest. the fastest would win. And her, well, I got Isaac Asimov, which I thought was bloody pretty good. It's amazing. Anyway, she but got, the, what were your letters? Well, well, before that, before that though, Omar was so polite with the audience members, who's saying, oh, excuse me, could you, could you move over there? Thank you, could you move over there? And it was all timed. So I beat you in the second round because I was kind of shoving people. And in fact, a rugby player came and took me out later because he said, I haven't been touched like that for ages. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. But then in the final round, I had four people holding up four letters. And the expected outcome, the expected author was um, going to be Martin Amos, A M I S, and they were in the order M I S A, and they started the time, and I went time, and they went what? And I said Misa, and they were like, who, who's that? And I said famous Samoan author. Thank you very much. And the MC kind of the blood drained from his face, and he went, I've never heard of him. Yeah. I said. You know, he's the centre of my world. Yeah, yeah. And isn't this the Australian New Zealand Literary Festival and we're in the Pacific and the whole... I'm not raising that just because I'm yeah, wearing my are. medal or anything. Yeah, you are. It was a stitch-up. But I'm just... It was a quango. <laughs> but, but leading on to the, st- the stage being for other 
stories, yeah. you know, to take centre stage, and that's exactly what... Well, that's exactly what this book's about. So anyway, there was method to the madness of rehashing this ignominious <laughs> defeat that I had. But we were sort of talking about, yeah, you know, uh, oftentimes people say, like, oh, these marginalised communities, or they're, yeah, they're outsiders, and this is outsider literature. I don't consider my literature to be outsider. I think that my story and the story of people like me is at the very dead centre is of what is of cultural substance uh, in Australia at the moment. Well, uh, not right. necessarily the middle class white experience right. that has been you know, represented well, for so long. And Patricia Grace was recently asked whether her, she considered her stories political and she said, no, I write ordinary stories about ordinary people who happen to be Māori in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So it's the context that suddenly makes their voices, their stories, political. Yeah, definitely. Although it is very much a product of the Tony Abbott era of Australia, this book. Um, yeah, <laughs> I kind of... Uh, I was influenced a lot by um, Cormac McCarthy in writing this book. Blood Meridian is one of my yes, favourite books. And yes, in what way? Uh, well, I wanted to make the audience very uneasy by writing about violence in a very beautiful, lyrical way. Um, because a lot of the men are uh, drawn to violence and feel like they can't help but act violently, that it's some natural inclination they've got. So I wanted to write about it beautifully to sort of uh, mirror that and so that the audience might start being drawn into that violence and suddenly think, God, what, how am I getting drawn into that? And, and that unease, um, that, that little um, uncomfortability, or sort of that discomfort, um, is what I wanted to provoke in the audience. Because it's only through unease, I think, that you start questioning yourself and questioning received knowledge. Um, and, that, uh, and that's why I also wanted to... Oh, sorry, and I was influenced by McCarthy because he had the character of the judge, Judge Holden, in, um, in, in Blood Meridian. And he was kind of this, this really evil man and he represents evil, he represents violence. And at the end of Blood Meridian, it says... He says he will never die. He keeps repeating this, he will never die. And I wanted to <laughs> take something like that and turn it into a, uh, the undying Australian conservative politico um, <laughs> who cannot be beaten. You know? And this is where you suddenly realise that uh, the, the odds are stacked against these characters. Yes. Um, because there's a moment early in the book, and, and at first you think maybe it might be gritty realism that I'm writing, but then these, these men in a rather unlikely scenario kind of meet this un, this. Um, politician at a bar and they beat the fuck out of him. They beat him so badly that the blood is coming off his face like sparks, of, like garnets and, um, and he's soon very, he's disfigured. You can't, you can't recognise him. And then in the next scene, they see him on television and he appears perfectly immaculate and he, he's not, there's not a bruise or a scar yes. on his face. Yes. And you suddenly realise that there's more at play here. Um, and then that's why I put up, in contrast to him, a, a mythical character I created called Sin One, who is a seven-foot Aboriginal man who is considered to be the best rapper that Australia ever produced. And I s describe him as being kind of like the, the, the maimed captain of a shipwrecked generation, you know. And so he is in, he's heroic. He is entirely heroic in contrast to Damien Crawford. And I had a lot of fun coming up with that name. Because um, <laughs> I wanted a name like Tony Abbott or John Howard that was kind of normal, but then the more you hear it, the more you get pissed off at it, you know. <laughs> Damien, oh, buddy, Damien Crawford was talking on TV. And I also trawled the young liberal Facebook to find all the common names. Anyway, so if, no offence to anyone called Damien or whose last name was Crawford, but anyway. Um, but yeah, so, so, so Sin One maybe is 
a tragic figure who cannot win, just like the boys, because these structures that are in place might be undefeatable, and that's sometimes how it feels. Just like the dogs, the greyhounds, who are chasing the, that artificial rabbit around the track, but they will never catch it. And the true winner is the, the, the person in the stands with the ticket in their hands, you know? And, and so that, that was why I was using those kind of metaphors. And that's why we're left with multiple journeys at the end, multiple yeah. futures and possibilities. And I couldn't tie them up, yep. you know, that would be too neat. No. Australia is a society in flux and, um, and we're trying to figure out where we're going and who the hell we are and some people don't even want to go that far. Because yeah. it's interesting, um, there, was, there was talk about making the book into a film and you didn't like, you, you know, you had very strong views on what kind of film or TV series it needs to be if it's ever going to be that. Yeah, I don't know if I've got strong views on it because it's such a different animal that one part of me thinks that you should just let it go. Like, you know, if a director was to take it on, just let it go and have their interpretation. But I think some of the people who had spoken to me didn't quite get that I was writing sort of magic realism and, and heightening things to the point where it was um, a mythical land I was talking about, like kind of a mythical Australia. There multiple planes. It wasn't, yeah. it's not gritty realism. And mm -hmm. so sometimes people kind of saw it from that point of view mm -hmm. and... I didn't think that would really do justice to the story if I it was shot in that way. But anyway, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. But that's where the character Sin One comes in, right? He, he, he presents that mythical, yeah. the, the strange possibilities that have a finite ending to them. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and that's why I didn't write it as Queenbian or Canberra. I called it the town with a capital T and the city with a capital C. Uh, because I've always had this weird, weird idea in my head that Queenbian is a microcosm for Australia as a whole. Um, and uh, and um, I, I, yeah, I wanted to raise it to the point where it was, it was an Australian myth um, of the magnitude of that kind of coastal idyll or the dead heart or the kind of bush ranger story or something like that. Like take kids growing up in the flats doing graffiti and hip hop and raise it to that level. Because mm. why not? Awesome. Awesome, that's great. Please join me in thanking Omar Musa. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.